Hello, everyone. Welcome to Teaching Matters. This program is produced and recorded in the studios of WOUB Public Media in Athens, Ohio. I'm your host, Scott Titsworth, Dean of the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Assessment is a topic that rarely receives positive acclaim. Educators at all levels recognize in principle the need for assessment. However, criticisms of assessment practices are common and generally point to a disconnect between learning outcomes, assessment practices, and the reality facing graduates once they leave school. In short, many feel that assessment is a hoop to be jumped through rather than a value-added element of education practice. But what if assessment was different, highly connected to the real-world outcomes? Today, we'll learn about an initiative called the 10 Principles for Building a High-Quality System of Assessment. The initiative involves a collaboration between 19 different organizations representing experts from education, research, workforce, and policy fields, providing a comprehensive roadmap for school leaders to improve current assessment and systems, focusing on equality and developing a learner's academic proficiency, career skills, and civic aptitude, as stated in a press release from JFF, one of the leading collaborating organizations. I have three guests today. The first one is a workforce expert. Her name is Gail Norris, who is the U.S. Lead Industry Learning Services for Siemens. Also, I have an education expert, Dr. Rebecca Wolf, who is the Associate Vice President of JFF's Students at the Center Initiative. And then finally, I have an assessment expert, Dr. David Connolly, founder of Ed Imagine and a researcher focused on college and career readiness, student ownership of learning, and systems of assessment. Gail, Rebecca, and David Welcome to Teaching Matters. Thanks, Scott. Thank you. So I want to start by talking about uh, what the 10 principles are. So, David, um, can you begin by sort of describing what the 10 principles are and um, maybe how they actually advocate for changes in assessment practices um, from what people might be normally thinking about? Certainly, yeah. As you mentioned, uh, they are a way of thinking about assessment as a system of assessments. So you think of a variety of measures and how they fit together into a whole, into a cohesive whole. The focus of, a, of the principles is really on getting students ready for college and careers, getting them engaged in deeper learning, using a set of comprehensive tests and measures to accomplish this, and at the same time making sure that educators are using assessment information to improve instruction, to inform learning, and not just as a, a way to judge people or, or to sort students into different categories. Now, it, it implies a much broader set of data, wider range of information, and deeper information about students. So you would, as an educator, be engaged in thinking about not just standardized tests, but about how you'd use uh, projects, uh, how you'd use uh, simulations, how you'd use deeper research types of investigations. You'd be looking at a variety of different ways. You'd also be using information from for example, student self-reports on their goals and their aspirations, and a variety of measures that not all of them are going to be high stakes, not all of them are going to be um, kind of at the technical level of a, of a state assessment. But taken as a whole, what they'll do is paint a better picture of the student and a better picture of what they're learning, who they are, what they want to be and become. And all of this is done in a context where you're using this information to continuously improve education, improve instruction, uh, and um, refocus schooling on goals that all students need to reach around being ready for college careers and being adaptable uh, for the economy and the workforce that, uh, in which they'll be engaging. 
Can you give an example of, uh, you know, maybe one or two of the 10 principles, uh, you know, how they're focused? Certainly, yeah. The um, idea of balancing assessment of learning with assessment for learning and assessment as learning. So you think of assessment as a, a way to figure out what students are learning, but also a way to get, gain greater insight. The students can gain insight themselves into what they're, they're learning. Uh, so assessment becomes a tool for student self-knowledge and self-awareness uh, in addition to any kind of a judgment about them. So that's one of the principles. Another principle is that you're going to align assessments to support learning and not have duplicate tests of the same things. A lot of schools end up with multiple tests in mathematics, reading, uh, and, and that information is useful. But we need to be looking at a wider variety of measures. Some of those are going to be interim measures that you get between your big summative tests. Some of those will be formative measures that help inform the instructor and the student about how they're doing at any given moment in time. So it's more of a range of measures. And the net effect of all of this is, as I mentioned, to encourage cycles of review and continuous improvement so that the, assess the assessments themselves are get reviewed periodically, but also their effect on the educational system itself to make sure that you're continuously improving schools. And all of this has to be done in a way that advances equity and is inclusive uh, and uh, creates accessibility for all students. We have to make sure that assessment is not a tool to to stratify and to sort students, but instead it's a way to enable all students to show their potential and their learning and to continue to develop toward the goal of college and career readiness. It, it sounds as if, as you're describing that, that one of the differences between the type of assessment advocated through the 10 Principles Initiative compared to what we might find in, in a lot of schools is that it's not a snapshot, but rather it's really student-focused and and really is trying to give a, a perspective that that has, uh, you know, has importance for the student's learning arc and, and potential career arc. Is that is that a fair way of describing sort of what's behind this? And I think the, the contrast between a snapshot and a portrait, I mean, a snapshot, you press the button and you've got the picture. A portrait, you know, takes time and you have to apply different uh, strokes to it. You have to apply different colors and medium and you have to step back and take a look at it and then come back and work on it some more. So if we think about a profile or a, a portrait of a student more than a snapshot of a student, it kind of captures the idea here that you layer on information. But one of the things about a system of assessments is that it collects information over time, and, it, and it, that information is cumulative so that you gain insight longitudinally as a student continues to grow and develop as a person as opposed to judging them each time at a point in time mm -hmm. against an arbitrary standard and then making all determinations independent of what, what their larger arc is over a, mm -hmm. a period of years to see how they're doing as well. So a system of assessments gives you that, that deeper, richer insight, but also over a longer period of time. Very good. I, I really love the metaphor of the picture versus the portrait. Uh, Rebecca, turning to you, JFF has, has obviously been at the center of this initiative can you talk about the multi-organizational collaboration, you know, the scope of it? Uh, I, I, I saw 19 different organizations were involved in the collaboration at this point. How did you pull together such a diverse group of collaborators, and where do you think it's going to go? Absolutely. So we didn't start uh, 
as the center of the collaboration, but started as a convener of a conversation. And we were already in conversation with um, several of these organizations. And as David just put it so well, we didn't start by saying, oh, we need to cut down the time of assessments, or oh, we need to really think about the psychometrics within assessments. But we pulled back and started with that big picture vision that David was just describing, where we were all a group that cared deeply about coming up with a shared vision of how we could advance equity and really better prepare students for the quickly changing economies and worlds and civic um, life that they were going to be put out into once that that first portrait of them is done. So what does college career and civic readiness really look like? And from there, we had a common goal of really helping create a clear roadmap for states and districts of how do you get there? Because we were very intentional to not reinvent the wheel. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of work and research and good writing already out there, lots of different sets of principles, lots of different ways of thinking about different pieces of this puzzle. When we started talking to our early partners in this, what was missing was Again, that clear roadmap, a way that states and districts and schools can really take action in building towards all of those different um, types of assessment that provide that complete portrait that really gets um, towards uh, the full definition of college, career, and civic readiness. So because we were pulling on existing work and really trying to push towards a future vision, there was a lot of voices involved. So on the, the nitty-gritty end of it, we went through months of feedback loops and individual conversations and group focus groups. So by the time we were ready to come out with the 10 principles, it wasn't a JFF project. It wasn't um, our partner's project, Education Council. It was really about this core group of original signatories who had each put their stamp on that big vision and what did the roadmap look like. Um, And so some of the folks who signed on um, to that early version were there because they had deep expertise in different parts of the principles and the assessments. Some of them signed on because they really saw the definition of where this roadmap was taking them. So that's where some of our workforce uh, friends and allies and the other folks that JFF works closely with came in, and that's where some of the advocacy groups came in. They're not necessarily the ones who are going to care or get deep in the weeds with states and districts around the specifics of the systems, but they are the ones who care with what the destination looks like. So that's why we had so many different groups coming in, because there are uh, very, um, th- there's quite a few different points where they can each see themselves reflected. And again, the, the, the whole of it is really what is, is of interest to all of these different partners. So as I hear you talk about that, uh, and my language here may not be uh, perfectly precise, but it sounds to me like you could call this educational reform, but that sort of has connotations to it that I don't know if you would agree with that 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 language. I think you could also say that this is an effort to recalibrate how the educational system is working with, um, you know, the larger community. Is is that a fair characterization in your mind? I would definitely lean more towards your your second characterization of mm-hmm. the recalibration. I mean, one of the things that 
um, we were really trying to adhere to in the writing of the principles um, and certainly in the dissemination and working with states and districts is that there is a lot of really great work already happening mm-hmm. that gets towards some of the principles. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe even in some locations, there's little bits of bright spots along all 10 of them. So we want to be really careful to say we're not about throwing the baby out with the bathwater. It's not about starting over, that there's a lot of really strong efforts in places. Mm -hmm. Um, What we are trying to do is shine that brighter light on here's what it would look like if you did it really comprehensively. Here's, Here's a North Star, if you will. So taken together, um, all 10 principles are what eventually we hope many, many more, not all, states, districts, school systems are moving towards. Um, but it's, it's a multi-year process, and it's, um, each locality is going to have to uh, take it on in different ways. So mm-hmm. it's very much about building on strengths and, and uh, some of the journey that some folks are already on and really pushing them towards um, what's going to be needed to get our, our students truly college, career, and civic ready. Mm-hmm. Gail, turning, turning to you, you bring the perspective of private industry to this conversation. From that perspective, why do you think it is that companies are supporting changes in how schools measure student capabilities? Thanks, Scott. Um, I think Siemens and our industrial customers have been very focused for the last few years on measuring skills and competencies and building those skills and competencies ongoing. So when you look at the first principle, that's really all about competencies. How do you identify those competencies and then how do you build upon them as you go forward? Um, And they really want that measurement in there. They want to be able to say, where are you today and where do you need to be tomorrow? What is your role and what proficiency level do you need to have there? So I think the the principles really drive towards the same thing that industry has been asking for for a while. And I think the the other thing that we see as we go to the second principle, as David was explaining, is it's looking at a exhibited and measurable um, exhibition of those competencies and not just a knowledge-based test that really just looks at what do they know versus what can they do, especially in the industrial environment. Mm-hmm. I think overall the entire approach really applies lean and um, a continuous improvement model, as David also pointed out, um, that really speaks to what industry looks for in everything they do. So that's, that's kind of why I think it will be a natural fit for industrial organizations to partner with their school districts to really drive this. And Gail, um, before we started recording, you and I were actually talking about some of your professional background and, and how you got to the position that you're at now going through different experiences and you use the word cognitive flexibility. Could you Would you mind just recounting that really quickly? And the reason I'm asking the question is it seems like the 10 principles really does try to promote an understanding of how a person might be able to navigate um, having greater cognitive flexibility if that, that lean system of continuous improvement is put into place for students. Well, just to define cognitive flexibility, it's the ability to learn something in one situation and apply those learnings in another situation so that as you're starting out in your career, it's normally um, the best time to adopt or incorporate that kind of cognitive flexibility into your skill set. 
Um, and it's a very rapid exposure to um, similar but different situations. Mm -hmm. So for me, it was with KPMG in an audit environment and going into different clients and different verticals every six weeks and figuring out how to apply the same audit principles in those different clients who had very different financial reporting measures um, and finding out the truth of what they were reporting. And I think there is a way to teach people that skill. It's just not something that most organizations focus on. Mm-hmm. Very good. David, I want to come back to you as, as we're starting to get into some more of the, the details about how this could evolve. So can you discuss your perspective on how, if adopted, the 10 principles might um, start to change the way that we think about some of the other uh, systems and and tools of assessment that we have. So you've already mentioned that it might require a, a broader array of data collection. Uh, might it also require uh, uh, individual schools, if not districts, if not states, to think about how they word educational outcomes that are being measured, et cetera? I mean, do you see if this is adopted, does, does it start to have an influence in improving all of that recognizing that, that what Rebecca said, you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Um, absolutely. It, you, you got the levels there, but the, the classroom, the school, the district, and the state, uh, we have implications, but also we have implications at the level of the individual student. And when we start to think about a broader range of measures, what we do is we take something like standardized tests, um, which tend to drive a lot of education decisions at the moment, and particularly in reading and math. And, um, we keep those. We use that information, but we put it in perspective. We don't use it to judge schools, and we don't use it to judge students individually. We use it to inform. We use it more like taking a temperature and uh, seeing if there's an issue or a problem. And if it were a medical situation and we took your temperature, we wouldn't then prescribe the medicine and the treatment based on your temperature. We would do other tests. We would get other information, and we'd figure out what was causing the temperature, and then we would uh, try to prescribe based off of that. So so we, we can keep standardized tests and use them as a, the insight they provide. <clears throat> but what we really will end up doing is getting much more contextual information. So a lot of that comes from students and the work that they do in school. So right now, grading stands entirely separately from testing, and yet they're both forms of assessment. How do we take what we learn from what students are doing on, a, on a basically a daily basis in schools and that the information from those teacher-based assessments, and how do we mesh that with other standardized measures and external measures so that we, we can get greater insight. Very often what we'll see is a student who does poorly on, a, on an external test but can do well in the, on classroom-based measures. So how, how do we reconcile those two types of information, for example? And then beyond that, um, how does a district uh, learn how to focus on the schools that really need help and support by getting greater insight into things like uh, the climate of the school, <clears throat> the leadership, how the leadership is viewed, and how well resources are being allocated. What we have is a number of measures that help to understand organizational functioning. And these, a lot of times, this information exists currently, but it's not integrated. And schools are making, and districts are making initial efforts through things like dashboards to try to combine measures. And dashboards are a good first step. But we need to go beyond that to what is commonly known as predictive analytics, where we really start to take multiple measures, we put them together and we say, what does this say about what's likely to be going on in a school? What does it say about what's, what's like, whether there's likely to be issues or whether it's likely improvements likely to occur? <clears throat> so with the kind of multiple measures, with kind of predictive analytic approaches, 
we can get much more precise in the way that we analyze and prescribe ways to improve student learning, ways to improve schools. As far as things like educational objectives, um, right now we have a set that we tend to focus on content, knowledge, and to some degree related cognitive skills, things like the Common Core Standards and most state standards focus on content and uh, an allied set of cognitive skills that go with it. But we're talk- we need to really think more broadly, particularly when we think about um, sort of what Dale has been saying and the world of uh, beyond schooling and when students are out in the, the work world, the kinds of skills they need have to do with adaptability and flexibility. They have to do with problem solving. They have to do with um, integrating information from a variety of sources and seeking information. They have to do with working with diverse groups of people uh, around a common goal. We don't really have objectives for those types of things, and students aren't really getting much insight into how well they're prepared to enter that work world. So when we think about adding career readiness to college readiness, we need to be realizing that the the standards we have are largely for college readiness, and we'll need to think more about a broader range of objectives and of measures that provide insight into the career readiness. Now, some people call these soft skills, and I would differ, beg to differ. I'd say they're the hardest skills to learn, not the softest. And we need to be valuing those types of adaptability, independent thinking, uh, resourcefulness, and other aspects that uh, will allow students either to enter the work world, to work for someone, or to be entrepreneurs and start their own companies. So um, that those are a, a range of implications that I think are they're extensive. And but the way into that I think is through rethinking assessment around a systems approach with a variety of measures for slightly different purposes. Mm-hmm. As I hear the three of you talk about this, nothing about this sounds like a bad idea, right? So, Rebecca, from your perspective, um, it, it's not as simple. I mean, it's a great idea, but there's a lot of great ideas that never come to fruition for various reasons. What do you see as being the the biggest obstacles or challenges to a widespread adoption of these 10 principles? Well, we would certainly agree with you that there is nothing that's not a good idea there. However, the Collaborator, collaborators and, and folks that have been working on these issues uh, were not naive. And uh, for better or worse, there are powerful si- forces on both sides of the aisle that have been and will continue to be calling for back to basics or limited testing just based on time and testing without actually looking at what is being assessed. So these forces are not going away, and in some localities, they're getting stronger for various reasons. And we tend to look at things a lot from the impact of public will and capacity and advocacy. So we know that we're at a moment where, while states have more opportunity than ever before to make the kinds of changes called for in the 10 principles. We're also at a moment where states and districts have been absolutely decimated by budget cuts and have uh, real and present issues around teacher shortages. And the kind of work that David's uh, explaining and Gail is calling for and the principles are really laying out, it takes a lot of coordination and it takes a lot of trust and it takes time, things that are not uh, sexy and that don't happen overnight. And so the 
will and the capacity um, has not historically been there, which is why, uh, again, it was so important for us to uh, come out with this piece as a field backed piece, not just one organization out in the wilderness calling for this, because this work is complex and it will take time and it does take the support of many of the organizations um, that have been part of building it and many, many more that we're hoping um, will take the competencies up and um, really start to, to move forward with them. And so um, while we've done a lot, made a lot of progress um, with this, we recognize that um, for all that there's many technical challenges with the competencies, it, it's as much a communications and public will building issue along the way as well. So, Gail, from from your perspective, I mean, I, I think that the perspective of, of private industry um, is is a unique voice in this dialogue. Uh, you don't see it uh, certainly that commonly, though, you know, there are certainly examples of that um, in, in recent years. How do you think that the voice of private industry can be something that starts to overcome some of these obstacles that Rebecca just mentioned? I mean, I, I, it seems to me that that's an important bridge builder, if you will. Well, I'll quote or misquote our ex-mayor. Um, they said a few years ago, who in this audience who's talking to the Chamber of Commerce can possibly say that they hate business? Business drives jobs, jobs drive the economy. The economy allows us to live. And I think at the end of the day, this all comes down to economics. Industry drives the economy of the U.S. Um, so as we look as industrial owners, if you will, and um, employees, what we're faced with right now is a skills gap. And it's all over the news, it's being reported on every day, that then drives us to look at how we interface with educational institutions and local partnerships very differently. So I think if, if government, if you will, isn't going to push for this, business will because we have a need in our businesses. Mm -hmm. And we have to have these skills and we have to have the pipeline filling those skills and there's been a little bit of a gap in the last 10 to 15 years in regards to what's been coming out. Um, so I think you'll see the push coming much more aggressively from industrial folks to say, we need this. How do we make it happen? How do we contribute to it? Um, we're already seeing it today with what Siemens is doing in regards to the roughly 750,000 schools we're engaged with in the U.S., where we have our apprentice programs, where we engage to put our technology. Um, and I think when you go to Industry 4.0, otherwise known as the IIoT, the technological changes that that is introducing into industry drive that skills acquisition piece even harder because it's going to change so rapidly. The acceleration of change is going to drive that, that people are going to have to learn more faster and more often than they ever have before. Mm -hmm. But David was talking about from basically cradle to hire, we look from hire to retire and what that means for the life cycle of the employee and how do we engage education, how do we engage resources outside of industry to help us drive that acquisition of knowledge and skills. Mm -hmm. So I think that we're all in agreement that the, that this is a very positive direction. So 
on a really practical level, if 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 you if I'm a, a principal of a school, a teacher here in Athens, Ohio, or the superintendent of the district, and I wanted to uh, essentially sign on to and or adopt the ten principles as a guiding force in uh, my my uh, educational practice, how do I do that? What what are the steps that I would go through? It kind of depends where you are. <laughs> so it, the starting point is going to be different for almost every school. It depends on the history of the, of the school and the culture of the school and the experiences of the school with assessment up to this point. Some schools already do an awful lot uh, with assessment in a variety of ways. It fits right into their culture. They've got project-based learning. They've got students doing demonstrations. Uh, they have data systems where they're looking at uh, information all the time to try to figure out how to use results from state tests and combine it with what they learn from other, other things. Schools like that, I think it's a matter of adding, you know, upping your sophistication building better dashboards, getting more into predictive analytics, uh, and uh, moving more in the direction of student involvement and ownership of learning. So in addition to reporting results externally, you're focusing much more on students using the results from their own assessments. And you're also expanding the range of, of objectives that you're trying to address, the kind of standards that, you're, that, that you want to incorporate into your assessments. In other words, some of the other skills that we talk about beyond reading and math and content knowledge. If you're a school that in a community that has been uh, part of the opt-out movement, in other words, those people who have been objecting to standardized testing, it's, it's a different starting point. And it might be a commu- uh, more of a conversation with your community about um, the need to prepare students for uh, a broader range of, of uh, challenges that they'll face and a different set of skills that they'll need to have. And it may be to build, work more closely with employers in that situation to make the case that a range of assessments is a good thing, it's a positive thing. So you almost can't say it's any one place to start. Um, in general, though, I'd say getting out from the under the tyranny of a single test and a single measure driving everything would be goal number one, so that, yes, you can use standardized t- state tests for a variety of purposes, but if it's driving your whole curriculum, then you probably um, need to step back and take a look and see how you can gain other information and other insights into what you're doing. And that, that involves... Uh, some work around around uh, alignment and around curriculum and around instructional practices and methods. So I, I have to say there's no one uh, easy way to do this. But on the other hand, it is the feeling that students need to be able to do more than read and write and do some math is, is a foot in the land. People do understand that. So um, if it's Athens, Ohio, or, um, you know, Portland, Oregon, people – get it that the economy is changing and society is changing. And if the stakeholders can understand that the reason for changing assessment is to align better with the world in which students are going to be living their entire lives, I think you can create an openness to then beginning to look at a variety of measures and put, start to put them in place. Building on that, Rebecca, let me come back to you, because uh, I think it connects to something that you stated a little bit earlier. You know, I think that economies and schools um, are, are inherently local, and, and hopefully they become intertwined, though, uh, you know, as you all have said, that's not, that's not often the case, especially through assessment. As you think about the 10 principles, it seems to me that they're very flexible and could be applied uniquely in, in a local context. Is that, is that what you envision to happen? And, and I guess that means that you know, one of the uh, objectives then is to really start trying to find mechanisms to create relationships between local drivers of an economy and the school system. Is that, is that a fair assessment? 
It is fair, and I would say that they are meant to be flexible, but as David has been pointing out, it depends on flexible for whom and for which piece of the overall system of assessments that you're trying to build. Um, And I'd love to actually just back up a minute to answer both the question you just asked and the question you asked before, because I wanted to add on to David's idea. Um, I would say, uh, in addition to the things that David was mentioning as ways for uh, folks to start to tackle the principles, I would say that one of the most important things is don't go it alone. So, very much to what you were just asking about the local, baked throughout each of the principles and the intent, and even who you're listening to in this podcast, is the idea that this is not about, uh, you know, individual schools putting their head down and trying to hammer their way through really difficult, thorny technical assessment issues on their own, that this is really about community conversations, about employment engaging employers and the workforce systems and about uh, engaging, again, the experts that were part of this work. These are all organizations and folks that are deeply working throughout the country right now to help. There is no reason that states or districts should try to tackle this on their own and a whole lot of reasons um, that they uh, should be looking at partners and broader conversations and cross-sector ways of trying to have um, both the conversations and the technical support that's involved. Um, so, so to this question, yes, I mean, they're absolutely meant to be flexible. It's why we went out with principles rather than mm-hmm. uh, a code book or a menu or a curriculum, if you will, of how to march through this. Um, very, very intentionally, they're meant for different contexts to be able to um, build what's right for their own portrait of a graduate. Um, And uh, as we've tried to allude to, there are parts of these 10 principles that really live with different sectors or different actors. So there are certain kinds of large-scale standardized assessments that have to be determined at either a state or a district level. But that said, how that gets implemented is very much uh, a district to school level and sometimes even within um, a district, there are different schools. So it really depends on which part of the system. But at the end of the day, we are talking about a comprehensive system so that no matter how local certain parts of the decision are, they are at some point rolling up to um, a single understanding of whether it's standards or competencies or portrait of a graduate, that there's some common understanding of what each and every student should be leaving that system knowing and doing and being able to act in the world with. Um, So customizable to a point. Mm -hmm. Very good. I want to end with um, a question that I would like each of the three of you to answer. Uh, And the question is, if you were to think about what success would look like if there were widespread adoption of the 10 principles, how would you describe that success? Uh, Gail, do you mind if we start with you? Sure. Um, I think if we were take the, to take what industry is looking for in, in the credentialing process, uh, for someone to come out of school um, as a graduate and have a set of stackable credentials that aligns with the skills and competencies that the industrial employers in the area are looking for and that those industrial employers help to define how they were going to be assessed, 
um, that we would have a, a much more robust economy in a, a number of areas and a much more proactive evaluation to the point of that continuous improvement model that it would be an ongoing dialogue with the employers and the schools to say, okay, what's next? What's coming down the road? What else do we need to start preparing for so that the next two years graduates are where they need to be? That, to me, would define success in regards to this whole program. Very good. David? Well, curriculum and instruction would start to look different. I mean, it would reflect more real-world applications. We wouldn't be learning content just... Uh, because it was uh, designated in the 1890s as something we ought to learn, we would be thinking about what students ought to be learning today. You know, data analytics is a great example. Entrepreneurship is another uh, example of the kind of thing that we may see more of in schools as you start to become more flexible with assessment and more multiple measure with it. The other thing is a change, hopefully, at the state level in terms of state assessment policy to start to acknowledge that you need uh, not to use assessment as a club uh, to hold over the head of educators, but you need to use it, as I mentioned before, as a way to identify if there's a pro- you know, an issue or a problem, but more to focus on getting information to schools and to students to help them improve. So uh, the change in federal policy with the um, with ESSA, um, the, the Every Student Succeeds Act, is does provide a, a small window and perhaps uh, a greater opportunities as we go along. So state, federal changes, state changes, and then uh, eventually changes in the classroom uh, at a a very operational level. And Rebecca? So I'm going to borrow from uh, the the document itself, the 10 principles, and say that success would look like we have built that bridge from our current overburdensome and incomplete assessment practices to policies and systems that are genuinely putting each and every student's learning at the center in order that each and every student is graduating with the full array of knowledge, skills, and behaviors that we know they need to succeed beyond life in high school. Mm -hmm. Very good. Uh, Before we end, uh, before we started recording, David, you mentioned that you have a book coming out that is compatible with the 10 principles. Uh, Could you, you know, talk about that just for a second? Certainly, it's a, the title is The Promise and Practice of Next Generation Assessment by Harvard Education Press, and it'll be out in September. And it goes into uh, continued detail uh, in these areas, these 10 principles, and has examples of schools and systems and collaborations that are working in this space, talks about the challenges that go along with multiple measures of assessment and with new types of assessment and different types of assessment, it looks at uh, the implementation challenges that, that we touched on here goes into more depth on those. And it presents an example of a, a profile that combines information for the purpose of determining how college-ready a student is, and a profile that could conceivably be shared with a, a college or university, a community college or an employer that, that shows the student's capabilities in a wide variety of areas. So it's a book that builds on these 10 principles, goes into some more depth, and takes it down to uh, an even more practical level. Very good. I'll look forward to uh, taking a look at that book, and maybe we'll have you back on um, to talk about the book in some detail. That'd be 
great. Uh, I want to thank each of the three of you for being a guest on the podcast today. I really appreciated the conversation. And um, if if I haven't expressed it enough, I think that this dialogue is critically important because of, um, Rebecca, how you so eloquently described the current state of assessment and also the potential for what the 10 principles could lead us toward. Thank you, Scott. It was a pleasure to be on. Today, we've been talking about the 10 principles for building a high-quality system of assessment, a collaboration between 19 different organizations representing educational researchers, industry, and policy reform advocates trying to make assessment better for students and teachers and educators around the country. My guests today were Gail Norris, U.S. Lead Industry Learning Services of Siemens, also Dr. Rebecca Wolf, the Associate Vice President of JFF's Students at the Center Initiative, and also Dr. David Connolly, the founder of Ed Imagine and a researcher focused on college and career readiness. You can find links to their profiles in the text accompanying this podcast. Thank you for listening to Teaching Matters. This has been produced by WOUB Public Media. You can always listen at woub.org backslash listen. We're also available through several popular podcasting apps, including Google Play, iTunes, and NPR One. You can contact the staff of the podcast with ideas, questions, or comments through our Facebook page. Simply go on Facebook and search for Teaching Matters Podcast. Our audio engineer today was Adam Rich, and I'm Scott Titsworth. Have a great day.